the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Beth Felker-Jones, professor of theology at Northern Seminary in Illinois. She's the author of several books, including a collection of pandemic prayers, Faithful, A Theology of Sex, Practicing Christian Doctrine, and Marks of His Wounds, Gender Politics, and Bodily Resurrection. I've known Beth for a long time. During my doctoral program at Wheaton College, I was a teaching assistant in one of her classes, and she served as my second reader on my dissertation. She's a keen and generous scholar that whom I have long admired. Today, we will be spending a good bit of time talking about Practicing Christian Doctrine, an introduction to thinking and living theologically, published with Baker Academic in 2014. If you're not familiar with Beth and her work, I am delighted to introduce you to her today. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Amy. Glad to be with you. All right. Well, let's start off with, I you know, always love asking questions about kind of one's journey into theology, like how do we kind of get here, right? So could you start us off by talking about what systematic theology is and what your journey into this discipline looked like? And then maybe if there's a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you. Sure. I think the the discipline title, systematic theology, can sound sort of intimidating and confusing. Uh, and the truth is that even systematic theologians don't agree on what systematic theology precisely is. Um, theology, of course, is just the study of the things of God. And when we do it systematically, uh, we try to pay attention to the way things interconnect. Uh, so how do the various teachings of the Christian faith affect each other? How do they connect to different intellectual conversations that are going on? on in the world and philosophy and science and poetry and so on. Um, so it's systematic in the sense that we're um, trying to see how things hold together. Uh, systematic theology can never, of course, succeed in completely doing that. Um, but the attempt to do so is a great exercise uh, of intellect and faith. Um, I got into systematic theology because I'm a nerd who likes to teach about Jesus. Um, <laughs> Uh, in college, I worked at church camp. I loved teaching about Jesus. I discerned some kind of call to some kind of ministry. Uh, in seminary, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it was the nerd version of that call um, and that I wanted to spend my uh, gifts and my life writing and teaching. And so I, I still get to teach about Jesus, but in a way that involves reading lots of books and um, talking with people about uh, matters of faith and intellect, which is really, really fun for me. Key moments in, in my journey as a theologian. It's an interesting question. I think I'll name a couple things uh, from the time when I was training for theology. Uh, one was, uh, or just involves, uh, how surprising one's own calling can turn out to be, right? When I was doing my PhD work, I would have told anyone I wanted to do this to teach. I had no interest in writing. Um, that 
turned out simply not to be true. So I learned uh, through doing actual writing that uh, I wanted to do that too and that I felt like it was a part of my calling. I'll also just name in my training, uh, my first year of PhD work, I was pregnant with my first child. And uh, that experience of being a pregnant student uh, led me to think a lot about the way doctrine relates to the body. Um, and so that's just an example of ways that one's personal life, one's actual lived life, right, can connect to the kinds of questions that one is interested in uh, as a theologian. I ended up writing about the resurrection of the body, um, but it really came out of that experience of becoming a mother um, in my first years in working as a theologian. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that book. As I've told you before, I actually used that in my theological anthropology class, Your Marks of His Wounds, which came out of your dissertation. Um, and yeah, especially um, in discussing the binaries that we kind of fall into, um, where uh, assuming kind of specific, like non-rationality being associated with being female, you know, these different kinds of things that, that really set up how we think about our bodies. And so I, I, I'm appreciative of that work. And I, I just think I'm reminded very regularly about how important it is to have theologians who have life experiences that are maybe different from who have historically been theologians <laughs> in order to fill out how our, you know, what it means for us to think about God and, and, and live out theology in our lives. So before we get into your book and other work, you're in the process of making a big move from Wheaton College to Northern Seminary. So thank you for taking a break from uh, packing lots of boxes to talk with me. Could you reflect a bit on your years teaching undergrads and graduate students? And it may be too early for this question, but from these past several years, what will you be taking with you into teaching at a seminary? So we have a bit of a shift in sort of direction, audience, you know, what will you miss and what are you looking forward to? Yeah. Uh, as I leave Wheaton, I've been uh, there for more than a decade uh, and I've, I've loved it dearly. I've loved my wonderful colleagues. I've loved my wonderful students. Um, and at Wheaton, I've primarily taught undergrads, though I've always taught grad students uh, to some small extent, uh, maybe a class or two uh, a year. I'll always love undergraduates. Uh, they're, they're great, they're earnest and interesting and on the cusp of so many things and making decisions. Um, but as time has gone on, I have felt myself more and more drawn to my grad students um, and had been thinking for a few years now that I was interested in a transition to seminary teaching um, in order to be closer to people who are actually at work in the church. Uh, it's a privilege to work alongside students and to be with students who can create more of a dialogue with me. Um, I think teaching grad students is less one-sided than teaching undergrads is, though of course even that's not one-sided, but um, adult students, you know, bring so much from their lives and their work uh, to the study of theology, and that's really fun to put that together. Um, so I'm looking forward to transitioning to teaching uh, grad students full-time, uh, to working with people who are at work in the church and are thinking about how theology, you know, matters um, for that. Uh, I'll always miss people, right? Uh, there are great people um, at Wheaton, and it's uh, sad to go in that regard for sure. But I'm excited for the change. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun and a new challenge, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot. We'll be spending a good bit of time talking about your book, Practicing Christian Doctrine. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful for this resource that is not only informative, but it's 
accessible, generous, and expansive. And not expensive. So thank you for that. Thank you, Baker. Uh, I've recommended this book to colleagues, pastors, students, and lay people alike. So thank you for writing this book. What provoked you into writing it? Yeah, you know, I wrote this book for my students. Um, I have taught a number of different introductions to theology that are out there, and I've read more than I have taught. And I hadn't found something that did the main thing I want to do for my students, which is share with them my conviction that theology actually matters for our lives um, in every way and in every moment. So I set out to write a book that would give a clear introduction to the basics of Christian theology uh, from a perspective that isn't just that of one denominational tradition, but uh, which is broadly evangelical and that would connect doctrine to to actual life. And uh, I've been grateful to um, be able to share that work with my students. It really came out of teaching, uh, came out of the way I teach theology, and I continue to learn about that as I as I teach. Did that answer your question, Amy? It did. It did. I, you know, I think that um, anyone who teaches, and I think at, on an academic level or doing, you know, different classes at churches and whatnot, there's there's a real sense of. Um, the resources we have are great, and we're deeply grateful for resources. But sometimes it's it can you know it can be really difficult trying to find the right one. All you have to do is work in children's ministry for five minutes and realize <laughs> that you're constantly looking for a curriculum that does what you want it to do. And and I think that anytime that we when someone has the capacity to be able to serve the church and students, but to serve the church largely speaking in providing a resource that maybe fills some gaps or presents material in another way, I think it's a deeply important service and and uh, love for others to do so. So your structure or your you structure your book around particular doctrines of Christian theology, right? Like this is pretty common. Um, you begin with what it means to speak and live theology, move to, you know, the doctrines that we're very familiar with, Revelation, Scripture, Trinity, Christology. Theologians have particular reasons for structuring and organizing their presentations of doctrine. So why did you choose the structure that you did? As someone who has a lot of experience teaching theology, what debates did you have with yourself about how to lay out this book? Yeah, you know, I find those questions, what to put in what order, really, really interesting. Uh, but because I wanted to write this book chiefly as a teaching resource, I didn't want to do anything particularly distracting. Um, and so I chose an order which is relatively non-controversial. I'm sure it's not exactly what everyone else would do, but it's loosely a creedal order or an order that follows the story of the biblical narrative. Uh, beginning with what theology is, because I don't know how to talk about theology without first saying something about what theology is, and then moving into the doctrine of scripture, which is a really classically Protestant move, uh, as Protestants uh, want to claim that our theology uh, comes directly from scripture as a conversation about scripture. Uh, that's a claim I want to make as a Protestant uh, theologian. So um, while it might be fun and a different kind of project to uh, mess with that order, right, and sometimes theologians will highlight uh, a less common beginning point, for instance, uh, for this project, I just wanted to help people think about the way the church has generally thought about uh, this stuff uh, in a classically Protestant way. So let's look on the, the, the scripture thing for a moment. So one of the things I so appreciated about this book is how you center scripture as truly fundamental to theology. And as you mentioned, that's a that's a purely Protestant move. 
But I don't think that necessarily all the time it it is best executed <laughs> in books. <laughs> so how do we as theologians who have a confessional commitment to Christianity, um, and maybe specifically from, obviously from the Protestant perspective here, help those who are kind of over scripture or are really troubled by scripture and like specific sections of it or just the whole shebang, right? How do we, where do you, because you know, the point of your book isn't like explaining biblical studies or scripture, right? Um, how do we as theologians help people kind of engage well with the text, right? Because theology is a really important piece of that to know what theology or what scripture even is. Yeah, I try to model what I take to be a, a fairly classically Christian way of doing that, right? Which involves things like paying attention to the whole text, um, n- not uh, only focusing on uh, a few small passages here and there, but paying attention to the big picture narrative. Um, I read that narrative um, as incredibly beautiful, as incredibly revelatory of the character of in the triune God who is love. And I, I hope that modeling such a reading is itself convincing to some who might be concerned that uh, scripture uh, is harmful, is obsolete. There are really bad readings of scripture out there, and I, I think the counter to that is good readings of scripture. Um, we never get those perfect, of course, as limited human beings, as sinners, um, but in the conversation of the whole church, uh, we have a really beautiful tradition of, of how to do that. Um, on the flip side, you get people who are worried that theology won't pay enough attention to scripture, right? Um, and I want to be Where's able to speak Bible? to those people too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Why, why do theology? Why not just read the Bible? Um, and the answer is the Bible is extraordinarily complicated and interesting. Uh, and we have to have conversations about how to read it well, right? How to follow a theme, how to uh, put together pieces which don't seem to fit together at first glance and so on. Um, and, uh, I want to be clear how theology does that. Again, I'm convinced that classic Christian theology um, is doing that at every point. People aren't just making stuff up. They're they're talking about the scriptures. Um, and I want to display that. Yeah, there's always the, the, the piece, right, with the Trinity that tends to be one of those moments that that comes up. Well, these terms that we see in the creed or these things, they're not, they're not in the Bible. They're, you know, they made these things up. These people put this on top of scripture and made it sound like this. And yet I think the Bible requires them, right? Yeah. Right, right. And, and helping people to kind of make those, that's, that is the work of theology there to make that connection. And if you don't, and it's there, but if it's not drawn attention to, if it's not synthesized, if it's not sort of, then it becomes a place that's a, an unnecessary stumbling block. Um, so I'm going to ask a, a huge question. So here's fair warning. Uh, you explained in your introduction that you write from an evangelical and ecumenical perspective. So we mentioned Protestant, and we're getting a little bit more specific with evangelical. So evangelicalism has been going through it for a while now, to put it mildly. Is it more difficult now to hold on to evangelical and ecumenical? How have you been processing what it means to be evangelical in light of recent events? And you can interpret recent events as you will. Yeah, for me, it's clearly more difficult that when I turned in this book manuscript, several years ago now, um, and the politiz- politicization uh, of the term, uh, which has 
been happening in the U.S. for a long time, but which has um, advanced in recent years in really particular ways has, has certainly made that harder. Um, that's a source of great grief to me. I don't want to give up the term evangelical because it means about the gospel. Um, and the beauty of that gospel as reflected in scripture is, you know, what my whole life is about. Um, but there are more and more contexts in which people may not be able to hear the word evangelical and think anything that has to do with the truth of the gospel. Um, they may only think things which are real, real distortions thereof. So I think evangelicalism is in a tough place. I don't know any thoughtful, faithful evangelicals right now who aren't a little bit fraught over the use of the term. Um, and different people make different decisions about whether the term can or can't be rehabilitated. Um, I continue to think that some of the basic historical reasons that American Christians started using the word evangelical um, are, are valid, are good reasons, right? It distinguishes a particular kind of Christianity from some other kinds of Christianity. Um, it tries to put a focus on the gospel in ways that are really important. Um, but maybe, maybe we'll have to do those things without the term. I don't really know at this point. It's hard to watch, and I continue to try to be faithful in, in the midst of that mess. Um, but it's, it's really heartbreaking to see people use the term in ways that have nothing to do with the Jesus who I know. Especially, I thought, you know, the evangelical piece, but also the ecumenical piece. It seems like those two things... Like you can be both of those things at the same time, <laughs> like because I'm because evangelicalism is is you know supposed to be a big a big thing, right? It's not it's not a denomination. It's like something. It includes denominations. It dovetails with different ones. I've, anytime I've tried to explain this to students in class, it's just it's a really kind of complicated structure of what it is because it's just it doesn't have a kind of you can nail it down with this particular structure um, of centralization or whatnot. And and there's drawbacks to that and there's also strengths to that and i think one of the the strengths if you know all if all things weren't the way they were right now is the potential there for there to be a lot of ecumenical connection um across the christian traditions you know i think of this a lot as as someone who's from the like charismatic pentecostal end of evangelicalism that i remember having this moment early in my graduate studies at Wheaton when I was sitting in class and and not quite understanding a lot of the reformed theology I was hearing and then once we get to the early church and thinking about the trinity I realized that my theology of the holy spirit had more in connection with the eastern orthodox tradition <laughs> than with the reformed tradition and it just really struck me, like, it, what what other kind of confluence of of Christian doctrine and kind of structure of the church where you can have that kind of wide-ranging connecting point? But uh, as you said, you know, we're kind of, um, the undercutting of both of those things has been really harmful, and it, it is deeply grieving. Uh, I also don't know the future. I was hoping you did. <laughs> but I continue to uh, want to hang on to what I mean by the terms evangelical and ecumenical. Um, and I've certainly learned so much from um, evangelical and ecumenical Christians and their works and have so much still to learn. Um, 
When you wrote this book, what aspect of theology did you feel was most urgent to explain? And is this still the case? Yeah, that's a fun question. Um, I always feel a sort of particular urgency around the core doctrines of the Trinity and of Christology. Uh, those doctrines are to me and, and to many people um, particularly uh central to Christianity. They particularly define the Christian faith. Um, and especially the doctrine of the Trinity is something that many Christians think uh, is too complicated for them to understand anything about. And so I feel an urgency about wanting to communicate um, the beauty of the doctrine, the biblical basis of the doctrine, uh, what the doctrine actually does for us in our lives. Um, and to say to people, you know, this isn't something that's not for you. Um, this is this is the heart of Jesus, you know, for us, with his spirit, for his father. Um, so th there was a kind of urgency there to those those central doctrines. And I think, I think that will probably always define my sense of what it means to teach basic theology and to write about um, basic theology. Uh, the hardest part for me to write was the chapter about the church. Uh, I think the doctrine of the church is, is very difficult. Um, I sometimes tell students half-jokingly that I find it a lot easier to believe in the resurrection than I do to believe in the church, right? Um, because church is really hard. Um, and I think there's an increasing urgency there as we as Christians continue to grapple with the sin of the church, the deep failings of the church. And I hope that you know, good ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, can help us to do that in ways in which we're able to move forward and have hope. Um, yeah. yeah. So another note with regard to how you organize your book, you hinted at this earlier, but I want to focus on it for a moment, is that you end every chapter with a reflection on practicing the doctrine under discussion. So this is where I'm going to have you read a section of your book, a particular place that I really enjoyed. It was one of my favorite sections um, where you did this on the doctrine of creation. Um, so would you read uh, this last section for us to give our listeners a sense of what you are accomplishing in the section on, on practicing doctrine, it's on page 95, uh, practice being creatures. Um, and just going to read that in that whole section. Um, Happy to. Listeners will be glad to hear it's a short section. So. Yes, it is. I know I say entire, like it's a really long section, uh, just where you end with um, and ending with Psalm 111 right there. Our practice of doctrine is a creaturely practice a practice that makes sense only in relationship to our Creator. The practice of the doctrine of creation extends into every area of the Christian life. The whole of that life is God's creation. The doctrine of creation is about our work and our leisure, our souls and our bodies. It is about the daily and particular details of our lives, eating, playing, sleeping, and timekeeping. In light of the doctrine of creation, we learn to see all of this, the little things and the big, as gods, as good, and as purposeful. As we become practiced in the doctrine of creation, we will find ourselves reoriented in life. We will learn to turn, by the Spirit's power, from disdain for creation to Christian delight in its goodness, from the Gnostic impulse to escapism to a commitment to presence and participation in the world from proud attempts at meticulous control to grateful openness to God's work in our lives, from frustration with our finitude to appreciation of its graciousness, from fatalism and resignation to active involvement in God's world, fighting against sin and injustice, 
from doomed determination to be independent in all things, to gratitude for our dependence on God, and acceptance of interdependence with others. From despair over sin, to awe of God's sovereignty and trust in God's purpose. From possessiveness to stewardship, from greed to giving, from abstemiousness to joy, from heeding the inner voice that calls us worthless to a new self-assurance that comes from the worth we have in God, from cynicism to a place where we cultivate the habit of wonder, and from entitlement to care of creation. Then would you reflect on the commitment inherent in theology for it to matter to our daily lives as individuals and communities? Ooh, I could talk about that for a long time. Um, You know, most theology, uh, all theology probably, has actually been developed in the crucible of our daily lives, right? As Christians faced questions about how to live, as they faced uh, suggestions for how to understand the world, as they faced basic choices about uh, how to love, who to serve, um, theology sort of has come into being, right? Uh, formal academic or, or dogmatic theology has, has come into being in response to real life lived questions. For instance, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, right, is developed partly in response to questions about how we should pray. Uh, Should we pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, great question. We better think about who the Spirit is and how the Spirit is revealed in Scripture. And it turns out, yes, we should pray to the Holy Spirit because He is God, right? And so I think seeing the ways that theology develops from real lived questions can be really important. But theology also frames a way of living in the world, um, shapes our basic instincts and responses and filters um, in ways that I have always found uh, extraordinarily life-giving. That's probably not what people first think of when they they maybe hear the word theology. Um, But I think Christians are hungry for good theology. Uh, We need this stuff. Um, It's beautiful and it's true and it's it's good. um, And it can help us see the world uh, as God would have us see the world and make choices about how to live in the world uh, as God would have us choose. Um, so I could say a lot more, but, uh, you know, at every point, it's all lived theology, I think. And Christians deserve um, a basic education in these things uh, so that we know that there are beautifully Christian ways of thinking through, you know, all of the big things in life. Yeah. I was particularly, I mean, during pandemic time or, you know, <laughs> COVID tide, I've heard some people call it, um, I was deeply grateful that I was teaching theology. There was just something about the the anchor of talking about the faith during a time when we weren't living together with one another. That was, that reminded me both, it, it was both, it both grieved me because I was constantly reminded of what we were missing. Uh, but it was also an anchor reminding me of of who God is in the midst of really difficult times. I was really grateful for that. Absolutely. I was on sabbatical when the pandemic began, and I found myself 
truly sort of desperately writing theology um, in an effort to remind myself of the truth of who God is in the midst of pain and suffering. Yeah. Well, and the fruit of that is your book, Pandemic Prayers, right? It's You're a little book. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so going back to that ecumenical perspective we just discussed, um, a feature of your book that I deeply appreciated was your intentional highlighting of theologians from a variety of different time periods, locations, and tradition. So what theologians have you read from outside your context that have, sh- have shaped your theology and in what way? Uh, And then what recommendations do you have for our listeners who are interested in expanding their understanding of the breadth of the Christian tradition? Because the answers to those things might be different because what you read, you might not necessarily recommend (laughs) for it, you know, accessibility purposes or whatnot. So, um, but what ones have you read and then what recommendations do you have for helping us expand? Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, I think the church uh, is global and historical. Um, it's there in every century. Uh, it's there in many contexts. And all of us as Christians have so much to learn from those who are in different contexts than us. Um, and so I think it's really important to read from different centuries, uh, something that I know uh, you're a fan of, Amy, mm-hmm. uh, from different continents, from different cultural traditions, uh, from people um, who are male and female, from people who uh, uh, represent various racial backgrounds and experiences, and, and so on. Um, as an ecumenical theologian, I find a deep unity in uh, good Christian theology from many contexts. and. That's something I try to highlight in the book. Um, There is also, of course, diversity, right? As people's different experiences and ways of um, experiencing the living God in their lives um, lead them to unique insights um, or ways of understanding scripture that might not have occurred to someone in a different different context. So if your reading isn't expansive, um, I love to encourage so expanding. If you mostly read new stuff, try some old stuff. Um, If you look at your bookshelf and it's mostly men or mostly white people, uh, look for some women, look for some people, voices of people of color um, who uh, can help to expand uh, the way uh, you think. Um, And I make an intentional effort to keep my reading uh, diverse in that way uh, to experience the unity of the church of God. Oh, recommendations are hard. Um, Old stuff. Uh, I find that students love Athanasius's on the Incarnation. Um, it's extremely accessible and readable and beautiful. Uh, I love Julian. Heart- of- heartily recommend. That's uh, a, another that's a, another that's recommendation. A, yeah. That is a that is a good one to start with. It's it's. Easier to read than you think. It is, absolutely. Julian of Norwick, uh, Revelations of Divine Love, uh, a medieval uh, English uh, Christian, the first book of uh, theology in the English language by a woman. Um, Really beautiful stuff. Um, In terms of global stuff, uh, I think Gustavo Gutierrez is very accessible, um, particularly some of his smaller works. So uh, his big liberation theology is, is lovely, but it's big. Um, he has some shorter books. Um, titles are escaping me at the moment, but uh, they're, they're easily uh, looked up. 
and there's more and more work being published in terms of global Christianity, which is really great. Um, so uh, if you just look for global voices, type in global Christianity to your, your Google search bar, um, a lot of stuff comes up. Um, there's so many interesting women writing um, in uh, contemporary Christianity. Uh, some of my favorites are Sarah Coakley, Catherine Tanner, Janet Soskis, and uh, it's just good to be expansive. So um, uh, I can recommend more things. Certainly, maybe I can give you a list uh, or something to, to post, but uh, I think thinking through categories can help us to expand our reading. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And and also in your book, you've got a ton of them listed. <laughs> I made an intentional effort to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just uh, pick up uh, Beth's book and see some of the ones that she mentions there. If the, when you come across them and go, ooh, I think I would like to read more of that. There you go. So I know that you're working on a book about conversion for Oxford University Press. So what provoked you to tackle that topic specifically? Because I will say, I don't know if I can think of another book on conversion <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, so will you give us a sense of what you will be adding to the conversation on conversion? There are many books on conversion, but very few of them are explicitly theology. Um, ah, there's a lot there, of sociology. Yeah, there there's a lot of how-to, um, uh, but there's there's not a lot about doctrine and conversion. Um, my interest in the topic grows out of my work as a teacher and my experience in the church. I think we're in a moment, at least you know, in contemporary North America, where thinking and talking about conversion is really fraught. Um, we've recognized some of the problems with ways that we have often thought about it. It can be coercive, it can be manipulative, right? Um, but Christianity is a conversionist religion. We can't give that up, right? The changing power of what God does in our lives uh, when we're turned from darkness to light, right? From uh, the world uh, to to God. And so I just wanted to think about the topic in a really theological way. Um, those other accounts, sociological, et cetera, are interesting, um, but I think basic Christian teaching will help us to think well about the topic. One of the main pieces of the book revolves around uh, the dynamics of coercion and consent. Um, I think a lot of our problems with the way conversionism has been practiced have to do with our right recognition that coercion is not the way it should be, um, that, mm -hmm. that coercive conversion is not conversion and it's not Christian. Um, and so big picture, I'm thinking about a theology of consent uh, as we learn that in all kinds of places in Christian doctrine and how that will help us to think well about what it means um, to be changed by, by relationship with God. No. Well, I, you know, I feel like I, I would have loved to have had a book like this kind of floating out there that people would have accessed uh, many years ago. As someone who grew up, you know, where conversion was tied very closely to fear. And I often think of D.L. Moody, I think it was D.L. Moody that said, fear hath not brought a man in yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, you know, all those plays that were traveling around, uh, you know, I often tell students about my experience with hell houses. If you don't know what those are, my dear listeners, count yourself blessed by the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> but these, you know, a lot of the ways that, um, besides kind of the emotional manipulation, the problem is, is that when, when the Holy Spirit engages with us, it can be a very emotional experience too. So how to kind of parse 
what is manipulation, what isn't, what is the move of the Holy Spirit in one's life, how do we as people who are presenting the gospel either to an individual person or um, in front of thousands of people, how, you know, all these different questions. And um, I feel like speaking of theology that can, that is a giant gap in theology of how we kind of see it lived out in churches of how we present the good news. Uh, we don't off, it's, it's oftentimes not presented in a good way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's news, but it <laughs> might not come across as good. Um, so I, I, I'm looking forward to this because, um, yeah, for those reasons. Thanks. It's been a fun and difficult project. Uh, the questions you just yeah. named are really interesting to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to shift into our speed round. All right. Because I am, I'm really excited. Okay. So just quick answers. Don't think too hard, even though some of these you're going to want to. So just resist the urge. Are you a morning or a night person? Night. Oh man. Cannot agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> I am. And when's your best time to, to play slash work at night? Are you, when do you actually, go I work better in the morning, but um, I hate the morning. Oh, okay. Yeah. What is your favorite holiday tradition? Oh, dear. Um, Any holiday. (laughs) Extra points if you you say something weird. (laughs) Advent wreath lighting uh, around the family table and uh, in the church congregation. Lovely. What's the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Oh, my goodness. Uh, (laughs) Willie Jennings' The Christian Imagination. Oh, yeah. What movie do you think is super duper theological and why? You can also say TV show. Ooh, I have so many answers I could give, but I got to default to what's almost a cliche for theologians, Babette's Feast. Um, It's about grace. It's about creation. It's about community. Oh, it's so good. Mm -hmm. If you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Uh, yeah, I'm not good at this one, I think, Amy. Um, <laughs> jeans that fit? <laughs> was that ever a trend? It probably wasn't. It probably wasn't a trend. Oh. What, no stirrup pants? <laughs> uh, a lot of things from my kind of youth are delightfully back, though. Uh, overalls, I just loved once upon a time. And again, one can wear them. Probably not as a professional, but around the house. Yeah. What is your favorite magical or mythological animal? Ooh. Uh, the Harry Potter hippogriff. Ooh, good choice. In the past 50 years of theology, what's the most off-the-wall theory you've heard advanced by theologians? <laughs> uh, the theory that the son is eternally subordinate to the father uh, is a justification for the subordination of women. How was that for a quick answer on a big Uh, question? Yeah, I love that you have that like right on the (laughs) tip. Because what's funny is when I when I looked at that question, I thought, well, that one, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, plug for uh, an interview I did a bit ago with Mike Bird and Scott Harrower when we talked about that particular subject in great detail. Excellent. Yeah, they're the people to talk to there. Perhaps a related question. What's one idea in theology that you think needs to die? Let's assume that one is already on the list. Okay. Maybe add another one. Yeah. 
oh, this is this is this is tricky. Uh, one idea in theology that I think needs to die. Uh, the idea that we uh, are able to get our doctrine right, and that will make us right with God. Mm, well, that's a good one. What is the weirdest question you've been asked by a student or child? Well, I teach about sexuality, so uh, I get really explicit questions from students that I, that I won't repeat. But um, while those can be awkward to answer, I'm glad they feel comfortable asking them. Uh, I had a child ask me if being made in the image of God means that he can fly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your answer? I said, no, but I think it means you can love, which is better. And he said, fly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I see where he's coming from. <laughs> it would be cool. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and one final question. If you got a day to hang out with any theologian, living or dead, who would it be and why? Ooh. Let's go Julian of Norwick, um, because I've learned so much from her about the life of faith. Yeah, I'd be lo- and I bet she'd be a good companion. Some people you really like to read, but you don't necessarily want to spend a day with them. I hear yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a couple other questions to end our time. As a theologian, how do you hope to see your work serve the church? And where do you think we fail? Uh, If I am, by grace, able to share with anyone uh, some piece of the beauty and the truthfulness of who God is and what God wants for us, um, then I will consider myself uh, to have have lived a good career. I think we fail often uh, in our tribalisms where we spend so much time Uh, denouncing one another on minor issues instead of talking about uh, the central things of Jesus um, and sharing that goodness uh, with a world in need. Uh, I think we need to leave that behind uh, and really think about the unity of the body of Christ, um, even as we continue to exist in all of our different contexts and, and obviously uh, appropriate diversities as, as related to those contexts. Uh, I hate to see Christians killing each other, literally and, and on Twitter. Um, and it does not testify well to uh, the one God who loves us. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's hard when things matter, you know, because all this matters so deeply and people hold things very closely. So you, can, so you can understand why people get very intense and angry or upset, especially when, I mean, sometimes it's valid, right? Like if your theology is trying to, you know, exploit me as a human being or diminish my, you know, me being made in the image of God, I'm going to come at you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a difficulty there of how we kind of do those things, right? Because there's kind of the approach of, well, you know, you go to your brother who (laughs) who is sitting against you and you talk to them in private. Like there's a lot of it's social media has made that kind of thing harder. And then what do you do when it's a larger problem than just one person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It Um, requires a lot of wisdom and discernment and, uh, 
uh, time spent, you know, actually reflecting on um, uh, the truth of scripture, the, the truth of, of who God is for us. Um, and it requires some denial of self and some empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. And uh, I also think that audience matters a bit where, because you know, I don't know about you, but it's the assumption that I think students have and then some you know, lay people in a church might have is that theology is about arguments. So you kind of come in with a, with, in a defensive posture, kind of ready to spring with whatever, you know, whatever you've come in with or, or thinking that that's the posture you're supposed to have. Um, and I think that sometimes students are slightly surprised that we don't have knockdown, drag out fights in the middle of class. <laughs> I said, well, actually, I'm kind of failing if that's what ends up happening. <laughs> um, and hearing from me that like, you're a student, uh, you know, of course, like, I'm going to walk you through things and, 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 and help you work through things. But I'm going to have a different conversation with a colleague, right? A different conversation with someone I don't know, um, uh, but who's being public about something, and it just it just gets really complicated in how we. It does uh, indeed, yeah. And as theologians, that's part of what we do is we is we have to be in conversation with other people. We have to be in dialogue. Um, so it's interesting that how we do theology is also theology. It so is. It so is, Amy. <laughs> so what grieves you about the state of theological discourse and practice now? And what gives you hope? I often feel grieved by how strongly at least popular discourse is formed by a few voices, uh, voices that sell a lot of books. Um, and often uh, who sells a lot of books is not shaped as much by graciousness and truthfulness as it is by other factors. I wish we would pay more attention to each other um, and not just pick up the top 10 Christian bookstore books. Um, often uh, books which are very sure they're very right about things which are less than central matters. Um, actual people give me hope. My students, people I meet and know in the church and at work in the world. Um, there are so many people out there who are uh, full of the Spirit and being transformed by the love of Christ. And they make me think that the church is going to be okay. What a delight it was to talk with you, Beth. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a privilege, Amy. This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Beth Fulker Jones, professor of theology at Northern Seminary in Illinois. Her book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, An Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically, is published by Baker Academic. You can find a link to her book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.